Hi, this is Dr. Lat Mansour, your host on HVMM Podcast. In this episode, I interview Cynthia Thurlow, who is an authoritative figure in intermittent fasting. She is a nurse practitioner, author of the best-selling book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, a two-times TEDx speaker, and the host of Everyday Wellness Podcast and co-host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast with Melanie Avalon. With over 20 years of experience in health and wellness, Cynthia is a globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and women's health. Her mission is to educate women on the benefits of intermittent fasting and overall holistic health and wellness so they feel empowered to live their most optimal lives. In this episode, we covered and talked about everything intermittent fasting, the protocol, the timing, different tips and hacks to make sure you fast correctly, and of course, most importantly, what we love on HVMM Podcast, the science behind fasting and its role in energy, weight loss, and longevity. So if that interests you, stay tuned and enjoy this episode. Hi, Cynthia. Today we have Cynthia Thurlow on HVMM Podcast. Uh, I've been on Cynthia's podcast before and we've met in person at KetoCon and I've got her book right here, personally signed. Thank you very much, Cynthia. Um, welcome to HVMN Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've really been looking forward to connecting again. Yeah, um, Cynthia is the authoritative figure as far as intermittent fasting goes and women's health. So I am very excited to ask the nitty gritty details as well as the scientific because, you know, a lot of our listeners here are very, very um into biohacking and into the mechanistic, the science, and and all of that. Um, so let's let's dry, uh, dive right into it. Um, tell tell our listeners a little bit about you, like just the background of who Cynthia Thurlow is and how she became this this figure ahead of what intermittent fasting is. Oh well, thank you. I, I think that it really starts with my background. I am trained in traditional allopathic medicine and trained in inner city Baltimore. I was an ER nurse initially, and then made an easy transition into another adrenaline junkie fueled environment as a uh, cardiology nurse practitioner. And I did that for over 20 years between both of those. But over time, I grew increasingly frustrated with our traditional allopathic view, not really looking at the importance or focusing on the importance of lifestyle, nutrition, etc. And so I woke up one morning in 2016 and said to my husband, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to write another prescription. And he, of course, thought I was crazy because, you know, who leaves a good, well-paying job to become an entrepreneur without a, without a sense of what direction they're going in? But I did indeed take that leap of faith and uh, nearly instantaneously had clients coming to me, you know, women who were frustrated in north of 35 with weight loss resistance and trouble sleeping and um, just having significant fatigue. And I started weaving together uh, a strategy that I had been using for several years called intermittent fasting, not realizing that this would then be something I would be known for. And so a few years later, I decided to do a TEDx because I'm an introvert and I wanted to do something that would be scary but safe. And so I did my first TEDx talk in 2018, and then uh, around that time agreed to do a second. And your listeners may or may not know that when you agree to do a TED talk, you can't do the same talk twice. You need two different topics. And I looked at my husband and said, what do I know a lot about? And he said, intermittent fasting. I said, great, I'm going to talk about intermittent fasting. And that venue really wanted to have a female slanted discussion on fasting. And so that's, that's as simple as that decision was to be made. 
and uh, really the rest is history. I did a talk in 2019 after being hospitalized for 13 days and almost dying and uh, that changed the trajectory of everything. I really did that talk just to show my boys I was okay. And uh, you know, three months later when it was released, it went viral and that kind of took my career and, and put me in, you know, like the, I was literally an autopilot. I just, everything changed. And I feel so grateful to be able to connect with people like yourself, other people in the metabolic health space, because what everything really comes down to is metabolic health is wealth, whether we recognize it as such. And I really like to take my background and use it as an opportunity to help educate and inspire people to embrace strategies that they can do throughout their lifetime, not just the latest potion pillar powder, which is what you know, what our, you know, health and wellness industry would like us to do, but I like people to have sustainable strategies so that they can be healthy throughout their lifetime. What a touching story to have, you know, your drivers in the professional setting together with your personal life drivers, you know, align, you know, as you were saying, you were doing it for you to show that your kids were okay, that you were okay. And at the same time, you also have that passion of wanting to help people. And I know talking about your passion, you have uh, a program, an IF45, 45 day program. Uh, can you tell us more about it? And, and what sort of protocol would you recommend to who? Yeah, that's a great question. So when that talk went viral in 2019, uh, instantly I had people coming to me that wanted me to teach them how to effectively intermittent fast. And so IF45 really became the basis of that book and the basis of the program that exists now. And what it really does is I figured out that 30 days isn't enough, 60 days is too long. It takes about six weeks for people to make strategic changes to lifestyle, both with nutrition and sleep and eating less often and increasing protein and lowering carbohydrates. And so it really is designed to be a program that um, it's initially designed for women because again, that, that talk kind of pushed me very slanted towards women, but men can do it as well. And it's really designed to support people that are new to fasting. It's also designed for people who need to really fine tune their fasting practice. You know, I'm a proponent as an example of clean fasting, which means that when you're learning the basics, you really learn the basics. And so understanding what breaks a fast, understanding that little things like being told that 50 calories doesn't matter if you're in a fasted state. So really explaining the science in a very approachable way and explain the science in a way that's, that's very tangible. So the program is designed to be this stepwise approach into an induction phase where I have people lowering their carbohydrates, increasing their protein, uh, really focusing on hydration and electrolytes. In fact, you know, 16 years of working in cardiology as an NP, better believe I'm all about electrolytes because I saw what happened when people's electrolyte levels were off, both high and low. And so then it transitions into uh, incorporating different fasting schedules, challenges, etc., and really wraps up with, you know, there's, it's almost like you have me in your pocket. You know, I'm speaking to you, whether you have the audible version or the in print version um, a lot of people want both because they like to have something tangible and also be able to listen to it. But it's really designed to set you up for success in a way that I hadn't found any other programs that were out there that were similar. So, you know, for me, it, it encourages women in particular to really fast for your menstrual cycle. Uh, for those people that are listening, you know, there's a time in your menstrual cycle to fast and there's a time when you should not fast. 
And then speaking specifically to women in perimenopause, the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause, and then men menopausal women who are a little more like men in the sense that there's not as much hormonal fluctuation day to day or week to week. Um, and I think menopausal women and men um, have the greatest opportunities to be able to fast without as many restrictions. And so that's really where it came from and where it started, but it's, it's turned into a whole movement and one I'm really proud of because the feedback that um, myself and my team get on a day-to-day -day basis is really gratifying. Great. Thank you so much. And I echo in terms of the importance of electrolyte, especially in cardiology. And that's that's how we bonded initially when I was on your podcast because of my research in cardiac physiology. And I've seen in uh, isolated hearts when the calcium um, ions are just off by millimolars, um, it, it just causes arrhythmia. It causes, you know, because the contraction and relaxation of the heartbeat is ve it relies very, very heavily on the balance of electrolytes. So that's what Cynthia was explaining about. Yeah, and it's interesting because I worked in a subsect of cardiology called electrophysiology. So these are the cardiologists that are putting in defibrillators and pacemakers and dealing with arrhythmias. And you better believe that I learned so much. You know, magnesium in particular is an electrolyte that even kind of conventional medicine oftentimes overlooks. And I can't tell you how many of my patients, just by repletion or replacing of their magnesium properly, let me be clear, there's a lot of different types of magnesium, but there were specific types of magnesium when properly repleted would oftentimes all of their PVCs or all of their palpitations or their arrhythmias would go away just with replacement of magnesium. So I got very savvy and it's something I could talk about endlessly, but you know, it's not just... Um, it's not just calcium, it's not just magnesium, but potassium and sodium and chloride all are so, so important. And what we don't recognize is that, you know, a lot of people say, well, I can just put a pinch of salt into my water. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, that's helpful. Yeah, you can salt your food, but, you know, having to then explain it's more to it than just replacing sodium. And so I'm so grateful that, you know, we share an appreciation and a fondness for heart physiology as well as electrolyte management. No, absolutely. Because our bodies will always try to optimize the level. You know, we, we have this optimal level of electrolytes that we need to be in in order to function optimally. So even if you eat more or you, you have less, like the body will try and, and try and adjust. However, if you completely, you know, eliminate a certain certain salts and, and not have enough at all. The body can't do anything. There's nothing to build upon. So that's why it's so important, especially for people who are intermittent fasting or on ketogenic diet, when they have very low glycogen stores, because glycogen stores stores um, uh, water and most of these electrolytes live in that sort of water storage, so. Yeah, and it's interesting when people will say to me, oh, I just salt my food, it's fine, I'm low carb, I'm new to low carb, I'm, I'm doing intermittent fasting and explaining to them that, you know, when your serum insulin levels are low and, and you're facilitating this loss of glycogen and you're also losing sodium, guess what happens? You know, you have to replace your body. This contributes to a lot of the symptoms that people experience. They have headaches, they have muscle pain, um, they have diarrhea, they just don't feel good. The fatigue that sometimes is uh, unfortunately named keto flu, I remind them is actually related to the dehydration that your body is experiencing. And, and so sometimes people don't recognize those symptoms. It can be for a lot of people when they're new to a lower carb or ketogenic diet or new to fasting, why they feel like they're struggling, like they've hit a wall. And I'm like, oh, it's as simple as replacing electrolytes. And so that's 
always has to be part of the conversation. That's right. So in terms of the length of the fast that you, you propose, do you propose a 16-8? Do you propose more than 24 hours? How do you go about proposing certain protocol for certain people? Yeah, I think it depends on, on a few factors. So if you're brand new to, to fasting and the concept, 12 hours of digestive rest may be the most that your body can, can kind of tolerate or you can manage. Um, a 16-8, I think, is a good milestone to be moving towards. Obviously, if you are uh, male or postmenopausal, it makes it a whole lot easier because you're not dealing with this menstrual cycle and whether you're in the follicular phase or the luteal phase. So when we're looking and speaking to younger women, you know, under the age of 35 or perimenopausal women, um, I always say fasting for your cycle is important. So understanding that in the follicular phase when estrogen predominates, which is right around the time that you bleed and up until ovulation, that's a time that you can get away with a bit of fasting. You can get away with lower carbohydrate or ketogenic diets, more intense exercise. And so that's a time to really, you know, capitalize on the, ta on the fact that hormonally, uh, your body can handle that, that hormetic stress, that hormesis. And understanding the week prior to your menstrual cycle, you want to kind of back off. Maybe you're just doing 12 hours. So as a good starting point, depending on where you are in life stage, um, 16 hours fasted with an eight hour feeding window is a really good place. Um, I think for many people, depending on, now let's look at, let me just back up and say, we know the average American right now is not metabolically healthy. So it's only about seven to 8% of us are metabolically flexible. So that means most people could go longer once they've built up their fasting muscle, if you will, they can go 24, 36, 48 hours because they have enough stored fuel and even thin people have enough stored fuel, but I think it's always the balance. And I, this is something we're very aligned on, um, not over fasting so that you end up breaking down my, your muscle. We don't want to be catabolic. We, we want to be doing things that allow our bodies to be anabolic. And so when I'm talking to people, it's identifying what are their goals. If you've got 20 or 30 pounds to lose, then doing those longer fasts can be very helpful, not just for resetting um, you know, cravings and metabolism, but also for helping to burn off some of the stored fuel that so many of us have, even thin people. But I think the starting point that I like to start with is 12 to 14 hours of digestive rest and then slowly working up to 16. And then depending on what your goals are, working up to longer fast. Now, I'm in a stage in my life where I don't want to lose one bit of muscle that I have. It's, it's harder to build muscle in middle age. And so for that reason, I don't do more than 24 hour fasts. And that, that's been for the last three years since I was hospitalized. I just decided from that point forward, I didn't need to do those long fasts. But I do have many women that benefit from doing a 30-16 or doing a 48 hour fast, or maybe once a month they're doing a 72 hour fast. But I really think it's very dependent on your metabolic flexibility, what life stage you're in and what your goals are to help determine what makes the most sense. Because what we don't wanna turn into and I've started seeing, I call it the triad. So I'm seeing a lot of women in particular that over fast, they over restrict their food and they over exercise. And so we never want to be putting our bodies under so much stress that they then start dealing with, you know, a broken metabolism. And I know that's a whole separate um, conversation, but definitely one that I have to kind of sneak in there that you can be guilty of doing too much hormesis, too much hormetic stress. And so fasting has to be used as a strategy, as a tool and used in a way that you know makes sense for you at that point in your life. I'll give you an example. Today I lifted. It's my first of two leg days every week. Today I lifted heavy. I came home. I you know my muscles were sore already, which is a good sign. 
and I decided today's gonna be a higher discretionary carbohydrate day. I had blueberries in a smoothie. Um, I've got some uh, sweet potato that I'm gonna have with my dinner. Uh, I broke my fast earlier because I was more hungry. So I'm not gonna be rigid on days when I know that my body has used up a lot of stored glycogen. I've you know put my body under quite a bit of stress. I'm very metabolically flexible. And so today I didn't have a 16 or an 18 hour fasting window. It was about 15 hours or it could have been 14 hours. And so I think, um, you know, once someone is able to utilize either uh, glucose or fatty acids or fat as a fuel source, and they're, they're more attuned to uh, intuitive eating and intuitive fasting, then they can get away with a bit more flexibility. Yeah, that's absolutely a very great point that Cynthia made, is that just because something is good doesn't mean that you pile it onto another good thing, it will be better. So you, you, you know, just because ketogenic diet is good, just because intermittent fasting is good, just because exercise, you know, intense exercise is good. You do all three very intensely, you know, day by day, every day, um, that would just put your body through that stress. So first of all, you need to think about adaptation, how your body adapts to it. You know, if you're metabolically, metabolically ready to adapt to it. Secondly, you have to think about recovery. You have to give enough time, enough nutrient for your body to recover from the exercise as well. And a little bit of metabolism uh, definition here, what Cynthia explained about catabolism and anabolism. So essentially metabolism is when we eat stuff, you know, we will digest it, right? We'll break down those foods into different molecules, proteins, fats, um, ketones, glucose, and then our body will either reconstitute it, i.e. anabolism, which is, you know, you build it to, you know, if you go, depending on your stimulus. So if you work out, then your body will rebuild the muscles that has been torn and, and build stronger muscle fibers. And catabolism is when your body breaks down stuff. So for example, when you're intermittent fasting, you are breaking down your fat storage, your glycogen storage, so that it provides energy for um, your functioning, you know, everyday function. So that's, that's metabolism 101. So in terms of um, autophagy, I wanted to ask you as well, like, what is the cutoff point? Because I've seen, you know, multiple sources, mixed um, sources saying that 36 hours is the threshold, 24 hours, 48 hours, when you get autophagy. Can you get autophagy with less than 24 hours? And if so, will like five calories cut that off? You know, what, what is your, your thought on that? That's a great question. Um, it's it's, dif it's difficult to measure autophagy, so I think that's an important uh, distinction. Based on my own research, the closer you're getting to 24 hours, that's when you really get this upregulation of autophagy, which is this waste and recycling process in the cells. And so I, I think a great deal of the nuances or the minutiae that people get caught up in, oh my gosh, I had five calories, what does this mean? I don't ever think autophagy is shut off. I think it's upregulated, downregulated with mTOR. And so from my perspective, if you are metabolically flexible and you stick a piece of gum in your mouth, I'm not worried that suddenly like everything comes to a screeching halt in your body, like time out, we're not doing, we're, the autophagy is, you know, there, there's no autophagy going on whatsoever. What I do think is significant is that we need periods of time where we are in a state, an unfed state, when our insulin levels are low. And unfortunately, I, I think that there's this misnomer um, by, I want to believe, well-meaning individuals in the health and wellness space, I'll just say it that way, um, that, that want people to believe that you can eat a fasting bar in an unfed state, that you can consume things under 50 calories, you can have a bowl of grapes, you can have a banana. Well, let's be honest, like 
what what is going to impact our insulin levels the least significantly fats then protein then carbohydrates so having a banana or grapes is not a great idea but if you have some mct oil or if you chose to have um you know a scoop of nut butter that's going to impact your body differently than eating that quote unquote fasting bar. Um, Lad, I don't know if you've seen these things. They, they reached out to me and wanted to be a podcast sponsor. And I said, fasting and eating don't go together. Like that's just, that was, <laughs> I was like, I can't stand behind that. So to answer your original question, the longer you fast, the more autophagy, but it's not as if a stick of gum is going to, you know, create this inhospitable environment for your body to still be getting in there and, and getting rid of diseased and disordered mitochondria, organelles, etc. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that want to argue. You know, they want to split a hair. They want things, they're so dogmatic. And I remind people, I'm like, listen, if you are metabolically flexible and you have, um, you decide you want to stick a gum or you're going to have a fatty coffee, I'm not really worried about that. What I'm worried about is the person who's metabolically unhealthy, who is thinking that it's okay to have half a stick of butter and uh, half a pound of grapes in an unfed state and that somehow that's benefiting them. So I really do think that the concept of a period of time without eating is going to be beneficial, but based on everything that I have read, 24 hours is when you really see these tremendous upticks in uh, auto, uh, upregulation of autophagy in the body. I'm curious, what have you found? I am so, so glad, first of all, to hear you explain the non-black and white aspect mm -hmm. of metabolism. And that's what I've been pushing on our podcast as well and speaking to many different experts and guests. And we all agree that metabolism, it's a very gray area. It's, it's more than just a switch, right? It's always a flux. It's turning the flux or uh, turning the flux up or down. So you can, you know, and as you mentioned, the key here is insulin uh, regulation. So anything that really spikes up insulin, that's insulin is such a powerful signaling molecule that it dictates all the other pathways that may or may not benefit us depending on the goal that we are trying to reach. So in this case, if we want to go for autophagy, insulin it basically says, you know, we need to build stuff. We need to pull in all these substrates, build up glycogen and all that. So that is opposing the idea of autophagy where you need to break down stuff and clear out, you know, all the debris, all the unused organelles and cells and dead cells. So you see that the, the logic here, um, listeners, is, you know, understanding metabolism in that sense rather than saying that, Item A can break fast and stop autophagy. Item B cannot. And therefore, you know, you, it's not as simple as that. I mean, it'll be great if it is. I mean, our lives will be easier, right, Cynthia? Um, telling people this. And the it, it's almost like, you know, the more I learn about science, the more I study, you know, going through like my PhD, the less I feel like I know and the more vague that I can explain things now. But I think that's so important. I say all the time and and you know when I was a new nurse practitioner this amazing cardio female cardiologist uh, that I worked with said when you stop learning it's time to retire yeah and so yeah, and I fervently believe in being a lifelong learner and I think we share that that I'm always curious like I'm like prove me wrong like I am always open to learning things in a different way and I think that that's such a gift, you know, that yeah. we don't have to remain rigid and dogmatic. Uh, just because I learned something 30 years ago doesn't mean that it can't change and can't shift. And 
Lord knows I'm going to keep apologizing till I die about some of the nutritional information I used to give patients, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. So I don't know if you, you, you followed uh, Liver King recently. Yes. Um, this email came out that he has been using PEDs and, and hormones and everything, basically growth hormone, testosterone. And this video made by More, More Plates, More Dates, they sort of define what char charlatan is. And, and it's such a great definition where they said experts in area of health and fitness, they don't tell you what you don't already know. Like we don't go out and tell people there is this mirac miraculous drug or that solves everything. I don't tell people that ketone solves everything. There is a time and place for ketone and ketone has a lot of benefits, but it's also not for everyone. And it doesn't matter how you get your ketones, whether it's for fasting, whether it's from ketogenic diet, whether it's from exogenous ketones, it, whatever works for you for a more sustainable lifestyle, that's, that's the goal, right? So that... It's such a big thing right now. Uh, uh, oh, it's everywhere. And, and Do you know what's interesting, Vlad, is I have teenage well, boys. Yeah. And so my my 15-year-old has been fascinated with Liver King. And, and the first thing I said to him when I saw Liver King was, I think he's had abdominal etching. Like, it looked so <laughs> perfect. Protruded. And that was yeah, the first I thing I said to him. Um, and then I explained to him, like, you don't look that way from just eating organ meat. And my 15-year-old, his, like, brain was blown. Like, what do you mean? Um, yeah. so yeah, I think that's, I think right now that is, that is, I was on Twitter this morning and there were still like reams of men, like their minds were blown that that was blowing up. Yes. They're blowing up. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, he's going to make another video of like the, the analysis of the blood tests. It's, it's wild. But anyway, going back to your question, what have I found on autophagy? So what I found is 36 hours is where autophagy starts. However, when people say, can I take exogenous, because, you know, primarily we sell ketone IQ, which is an exogenous ketone. People ask, can I take exogenous ketones um, during that 36 hours? So the way I see it, one dose has about 70 calories. Now, it does not increase your insulin, but you also think about your energy expenditure. 70 calories, you pretty much can burn it off like, you know, going for a walk or even like just go on podcast for, you know, depending on the time, you can burn that immediately. And we know that the brain and the heart uh, prefers ketones when it's available. So the uptake of ketone has been shown to increase as ketones are available in the blood. So I don't know whether it will stop, like reduce um, or prolong the time needed to get into autophagy. What I do know is that it doesn't spike insulin, so therefore it will have minimal effect on autophagy. Yeah, and I That's actually love using Ketone IQ. Uh, if I have a podcast in the morning or if I'm speaking on stage, it's just a really great way to kind of fire up those neurons in my brain. Because I'm, I'm certainly at a stage now where you know, if I don't have a good night of sleep or if I have a lot of stress going on, it's a whole lot harder to be like very, you know, 100, 150% in. So, you know, from my perspective, and I tell people this, that, you know, it's the nuances of fasting, like understanding that, you know, you're not consuming something that's, you know, going to raise insulin as you stated, but it's also going to have some brain benefits. And sometimes you need the brain benefits more than worrying about the, those nuances that people like they get so rigid and so dogmatic that I would just remind them, I'm like, if it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for, for you, that's okay too. Like just the, the whole bio-individuality, navigating what works well for you, what makes your body feel good is important. Yeah. And since we were talking about mechanism and science around it, 
can you tell our listeners a little bit on how are you using or what do you think um, I intermittent fasting is doing to address the lack of energy? Like, just walk us through, you know, the science of it. And, and why do people feel more energetic when they're actually not eating? Well, I, I think that there's a couple different mechanisms. So obviously, when you're in an unfed state uh, and you're becoming more metabolically flexible, your insulin levels are low. That will allow your body to go in and utilize stored fat as a fuel source. Um, and there are specific types of fatty acids that can be upregulated into created as ketones. And one in particular, beta-hydroxybutyrate, diffuses across the blood-brain barrier. And for a lot of people, when they start fasting, the first sign of them feeling good with fasting is that they have uh, more mental cognition. They're, they're clear mentally. They have a lot more energy. And it can be derived from you know ketones because the, the, the brain actually really likes fats as a fuel source. I also think about the fact that you know, the mitochondria are the powerhouses of our cells. And when people understand that you've got this degree of mitophagy, so your body can get rid of disease, disordered mitochondria, um, also allows your, your mitochondria, those that are healthy, to function at a more optimal or optimized level. And so if, you're, if your mitochondria are healthier, you're creating more ATP, which is going to help give you more energy. And it's interesting because I get the question more often than not, well, I have a thyroid issue. I have Hashimoto's or um, I've been told my, my thyroid is underactive. Is, is fasting going to make that worse? And so I just want to tie in that this is a great example of when the right amount of stress at the right time can be beneficial. And I find more often than not, as an example, that my thyroid patients who really have, especially after the age of 40, you've got more disease, dysfunctional mitochondria just as a byproduct of aging and our lifestyle. And so being in a fasted state and some degree of hormesis can help your body become more efficient, just a more efficient machinery. And fasting, of course, isn't the only form of hormesis, but it's one that's relevant to the context of our conversation. So lowered insulin levels, helping to facilitate the utilization of different types of fuel substrates. Um, we know fat is a very efficient fuel substrate. And then also that upregulation in mitophagy, autophagy, and then just the improved quality of our mitochondria. And I think the more I learn about mitochondria, the more humbled I am because it's not you know, back from my cell biology years, which were a long time ago, um, there's so much more that we understand about the mitochondria now that I always say, like, I want to do all the things to support the health of my mitochondria. And so, again, one of the things that can be hugely impactful is intermittent fasting. Thank you so much for the explanation. That was great. And what Cynthia also uh, mentioned about hormesis is basically, you know, uh, it's a condition where you give the cell enough stress just for the cell to adapt. So with the saying of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that's exactly it. So homesis, whenever we say homesis or mitohomesis, is specifically um, you give enough, for example, uh, stress to the mitochondria, it will create antioxidant in order to battle that. And that antioxidant is what helped us, you know, all the benefits that we, we know of what antioxidants do. So, um, that's great. So in terms of the other mechanism, so we talked about lack of energy. So the other benefit that people do, uh, that people look for when they do intermittent fasting is weight loss and food cravings. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and, and how do people cope with being hungry and or being hangry, you know, when they are just so hungry and, and you know, that affects their mind and their, their behavior. 
what is your advice around that? So Yeah, so depending on how carbohydrate dependent you are, so the average American consumes 200 to 300 grams of carbs a day. That's average, so a lot of people are consuming more than that. And for many people, they just don't have the experience of understanding how their body will feel in being differently fueled. So as you are transitioning, and, and this is how I advocate is, you know, if, you, if you're going from being a couch potato and eating a standard American diet, which is highly processed, hyper palatable foods, low protein, too many of the wrong types of carbs and way too much seed oils, as you're slowly transitioning from snacking and eating many meals and eating other meals, we stop snacking first, which is going to force you to adjust your macros to more protein, less carbohydrate so that you can get from meal to meal. Um, what I find is when most people start increasing their protein and lowering their carbohydrate threshold, those those cravings oftentimes because their satiety is is more is more supported, they'll have less cravings. But the real question that you're asking is how do you go from eating all those snacks and mini meals to going to a, being in a fasted state? Well, we do it slowly, and it's with the understanding that when you're in an unfed state, your body has those counter-regulatory hormones that are going to suppress ultimately over time. They're going to suppress your appetite regulation hormones. So you're not going to be hungry. Yes, initially you may have a stomach rumble. You may really just be dehydrated. So it's getting trained to understanding those bodily cues are not per se that you are actually hungry. You could just be dehydrated. Does this happen overnight? Absolutely not. Depending on how carbohydrate and metabolically inflexible someone is, that could take four to six weeks and that's why we go slowly. So we might start with 12 hours of not eating. And for some people, that's scary. You know, going from dinner till breakfast the next day, what? This is, you know, seems like it's crazy. But I do find for a lot of people, if we do it slowly over time, they can manage those hunger cues. They can manage the dehydration. They can stay hydrated. They understand what they can eat in an unfed state. And that allows them to get to a point where they can actually contemplate fasting. Now, we have to think about the fact that when we're in an unfed state and our body, whether we're insulin sensitive or not, we're having lowered insulin levels and that is going to help us free up these fatty acids and allow our bodies to use fat as a fuel source. This is going to help contribute to changes in body composition and weight loss. Does it happen overnight? No. Have I seen people that have lost 15 or 20 pounds in a month? Absolutely. Just by eating less often. And so you absolutely positively can see improvements quite substantially up front from just changing when you eat and what you eat. And this is so contrary to the information that I used to tell my patients. I would just tell them eat less, exercise more, which we know is garbage. Um, but in, in terms of net understanding of the, the basic physiologic processes that are happening, that lowered insulin is really going to be your friend that is really going to help you free up stored fat. And again, even thin people have stored fat. It is not just people who are obese or overweight. Stored up energy to utilize, to keep our, our brain optimized, to keep us moving forward. And then also getting comfortable with the idea of being hungry because so many of us are so detached from our bodies. We just eat like robots. We sit down at eight o'clock, 12 o'clock and six o'clock and eat meals even if we're not hungry. And it really allows us to get more in alignment with the cues our body is trying to utilize to communicate with us. And I find that that in and of itself, for many people, is life-changing. Such a powerful point that you mentioned earlier as well is that sometimes you're not, you're not hungry, you're just dehydrated. That is such a powerful point because sometimes I do feel that when I do intermittent fasting. 
and I feel hungry and then I have a glass of water and then I'm perfectly fine. Um, and I used to think, uh, you know, as a scientist, I, I didn't think much about it, but I should have. But I thought, you know, just the water just fills in, you know, the volume. But, you know, like what you said, it, it could be that I'm just dehydrated because when I'm intermittent fasting, I also find myself less likely to reach for anything, including water. So just like just doing, you know, my, my, my work and being very productive and just very focused. But as a result, I also consume less water. Yeah, it's amazing how that works. And I, I think that most of us walk around being clinically dehydrated all the time. And I, I, I think that the other confounding variable is that the older we get, the easier it is to get dehydrated. And people like my older patients would sometimes lose their, their thirst cues. So they wouldn't think to drink at all. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the go and running around, I would have patients that would say, well, I don't want to have to stop and go to the bathroom. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? You just don't urinate all day long. They're like, no, it's an inconvenience. So I think most of us probably are clinically dehydrated. I mean, think about it when you fly, you just can't drink enough water. You get so dehydrated from flying that I usually, when I go to the, to the airport, I always buy two. I know it's plastic and I'll probably have someone give me some hate about it, but I don't like to carry around a glass water bottle when I travel. It's just one more thing, but I'll buy two large things of water. And my goal is to drink one on the plane and one when I land so that I try to stay on top of the hydration piece. But more often than not, we're clinically dehydrated all the time and we just don't realize it. Yeah, absolutely. I hate the dehydration that comes with flying and, and traveling. And when you're on the move and you, you can't carry it around through the customs and all that. So um, that's great. And in terms of, you mentioned earlier about autoimmune disease. Um, I want to tie in a little bit on role of intermittent fasting and autoimmune and also intermittent fasting with leaky gut. Now, I haven't really done a lot of research in, in leaky gut and microbiome and all of that. I do know that it's caused by liposaccharides um, and, 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 you know, the nutrients leaking out and therefore creating an inflammatory response. What role does... Uh, intermittent fasting have uh, in this? Such a great question. I think LPS is something I fear. Obviously, I've, I've had it because I uh, picked picked up uh, an endotoxin when I was in Morocco last time I was there that set up the whole hospitable environment for ending up being hospitalized. But when we really think about the fact that intermittent fasting, we fast long enough, we can actually activate some stem cells in our, you know, our small intestinal lining. So the, the small intestine has a lining that's one cell thick, which is why we are so susceptible to the introduction of lipopolysaccharides. So LPS is an endotoxin and is very toxic to the gut lining. So once the small intestine, that hyperpermeability, once those small junctions open up, we leak food particles into the bloodstream and that sets up this inflammatory response. But my understanding of the science is that if we fast long enough, and depending on who you're talking to, it could be two to three day fast to actually get some upregulation and stem cell activation, but you fast long enough. And for a lot of people, they really just need the gut benefits of fasting. Like they may do a bone broth fast. They may do just a water fast. Understanding that giving your body time so that it can work on remodeling, it can work on uh, repairing the gut lining because the whole process of eating food, depending on what you're eating, can be very stressful to the gut microbiome. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. If you're eating a lot of processed foods, seed oils, 
Um, you know, you're eating the standard American diet. You're putting your body under a lot of duress. And so interestingly enough, women are at greatest risk for developing autoimmune issues. 70 to 80% of autoimmune disorders are actually found in women for a variety of different reasons. So this is one area of fasting that I, I find really fascinating is that sometimes these longer periods of digestive rest have profound net benefits on um, you know, repairing and remodeling the gut microbiome as well as small intestine hyperpermeability. There's a lot of things that go into that, obviously, but understanding that one round of antibiotics or you know, one round of you know, food poisoning like I picked up can take a hospitable environment and make it incredibly inhospitable and then make us more likely to develop that leaky gut, which leads to autoimmune disorders. And once you have one autoimmune disorder, you are more prone to others. So over the course of my lifetime for full transparency, I've had three, not realizing that that short course of antibiotics to treat Lyme then created psoriasis, which then you know led to other autoimmune issues. So definitely something that I, I think one of the probably lesser known benefits of the prolonged fast is the benefits of the gut microbiome. Thank you so much. So would you basically recommend if there are certain medical conditions such as autoimmune and, and leaky gut, you would definitely propose a, a longer fast for that reset uh, button? Yeah, I definitely would. And, and obviously in conjunction with what else is going on in their personal life, what life stage they're in, um, working with a qualified clinician or you know expert that can help guide them through the process because you don't go from being uh, on a standard American diet, couch potato, eating f 10 times a day to going on a three-day fast. Most people can't easily do that transition. So having someone support you when you're doing those longer fasts, I think can be very, very helpful. Yeah. And, and people might feel faint and you know your body just can't adjust fast enough to break down whatever storage that you have because you're so used to stuffing your body with all these nutrients and substrates so that your body knows that you're always getting all this energy that you need so the storage is not being touched the storeroom hasn't been open for years and years so now it's all dusted and rusty the door you know it'll take some time for the grease to to kick in in order to open the door so um, I think that's a good analogy for it. No, it absolutely is. And it also goes back to that, that word inflexibility. So your body can't flexibly utilize stored, you know, stored glycogen, um, which is stored sugar. You've got it in your muscles and your liver. And if you've already been told you're insulin resistant, then you probably have some degree of fatty liver. So it's going to take even longer to burn through some of those stored sources in order to be able to access them. And I think that's the other misnomer is that Sometimes we don't talk to patients that the process doesn't go from zero to 60. Sometimes it goes from zero to 10 miles an hour and it cruises there for a while before you can be ready to put your body under more stress. You know, we talk about the beneficial stress, right amount at the right time. Uh, some people can go zero to 60. I have plenty of them in my practice and then I have just as many that have to do it slowly. And metabolic inflexibility is such a scary thing because during my PhD, my research, I, we looked at um, diabetic rat and six weeks was all it took for uh, the rats to develop insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes and metabolic inflexibility by giving them high fat and high sugar diet. So basically we looked at their heart metabolism and they just can't switch from burning you know, a lot of fat 
to burning glucose, for example, even in the face of hypoxia, which is low oxygen environment. And normally a healthy heart, when you are low on oxygen, it will swap to glucose as metabolism because glycolysis is independent, uh, oxygen independent ATP generation. So you want to generate energy without using oxygen. So that's why they swap to glucose. But in these rats, uh, because they're metabolically metabolically inflexible, they cannot switch over and they continue burning fat, even though in the absence of oxygen. And as a result, they create way more um, oxidative damage as well as free radicals that in turn damage the heart myocytes, cardiomyocytes and cause uh, arrhythmia. It's fascinating. And, and to think that you're inducing that in a lab animal, and yet there are people that are doing that every single day without realizing it. Like well-meaning people um, that just don't realize the metabolic impact of, the, even just down to the food choices that we're making day to day. Well, now that we're talking about food choices, I know you, you, are, you and I were a big proponent of having enough protein to fight sarcopenia, which is muscle loss that is associated with aging. And Intermittent fasting also, you know, maintain insulin at a lower level. What do you think or what are your thoughts around people saying, oh, I need insulin to get spiked up after uh, training or after a, a big meal of protein so that my, my, the proteins can be used to, you know, repair the muscles and build muscles? Mm. Do we need insulin at that high level? You know, um, what, what are your thoughts around I, that? I don't think so. You know, the science as I understand it is you need uh, appropriate uh, fuel, so enough protein, and you need mm -hmm. uh, enough of a stimulus, an external stimulus, so weight training, and that combined with appropriate, you know, rest and other things is going to allow you, along with having healthy, <laughs> healthy testosterone and other circulating hormones, which are certainly important, but I don't think the concept you have to have this massive insulin spike because we know that we don't want to have a massive insulin spike. We want to have an appropriate insulin spike and we want to have an appropriate blood sugar response prior to the insulin spike. But we don't want it to be this, you know, going from 80 milligrams per deciliter blood sugar up to 150. I mean, that's, that's too much of a, of a blood sugar response. So from my perspective, it's more about the bolus of protein, which is a terrible word, the intake of our protein, you know, getting two to three good boluses of protein in a day, depending on who you are as an individual, and then making sure you're lifting heavy things. I think that that's certainly very, very important um, in terms of, you know, how you are going to adequately build muscle. I, I know that there are bodybuilders out there that will argue that you have to have five cups of rice and all these carbohydrates. And it, it has just not been my clinical experience that that is per se the impetus for helping to build lean quality muscles. I don't know in, in your clinical experience, what your thoughts are. No, I think, I think you're on the, uh, you know, I'm pretty much same uh, of, of the same opinion as you do because protein, even though it's not spiking insulin as much as glucose, it does have a, a moderate sort of insulin um, secretion. So I think that's the body telling it to, you know, take in the protein. Right. And as you said, you make sure that you have that stimulus, right? Um, I think a lot of substrates, a lot of pathways and signaling molecules in the body is responsive to the stimulus that we are putting it through. And that's why certain stress to a certain extent is good because you are telling your body to build or to rebuild, to reset, to reestablish. 
um, that sort of process is important. So I think, you know, if you are not a bodybuilder, you're not going for the 0.1% of super athlete that is trying to min-max everything and, and optimize to the millimolar, then, you know, you'll be just fine having that low maintenance of, of insulin with the occasional spike during protein intake. And we're not saying that eliminate glucose altogether. And, and you know, we, just for the record, we are not demonizing sugar. You know, we are demonizing excessive sugar with excessive calories and causing uh, the maintenance of elevated insulin for a long period of time, which in turn turn on all these inflammatory responses that cause insulin resistance, which is the root of a lot of these chronic diseases. So that's, that's the summary of it. No, no. And it's interesting to me, uh, how few people understand the importance of resistance training or strength training throughout our lifetime that I really fervently believe that, uh, you know, whether it's two days a week or three days a week, uh, that people are in the gym lifting heavy things. Um, that that is really one of the it's a non-negotiable in my world in terms of, you know, habits that, that we embrace that have tremendous impact on metabolic health, understanding that muscle is, is metabolic currency, that the more insulin, sorry, the more muscle mass we possess, the more insulin sensitive we become. And, you know, as you mentioned, sarcopenia, it's not a question of if, but when really accelerates after the age of 40, even more so for women as they're transitioning into menopause. And so that loss of estradiol and testosterone signaling can really make quite a, an impact. And not to mention the fact, you know, men go through andropause, but the average male in the United States, they're, I think that their average free testosterone levels are down 30 to 40% over 30, 40 years ago. And understanding that the two main reasons why that happens here, number one is exposure to endocrine mimicking chemicals, but also insulin resistance. So understanding that Muscle is not just for um, not just for vanity metrics. That there's really a metabolic need to maintain our muscle mass. Yeah, I always joke with my friends that you know I'm just working out for for the look. You know, don't ask me for any functional use. I especially when they ask me to carry all these boxes, I'm like <laughs> I, I can't I can't use them. It's just for looks. Uh, no, but you're right. Um, I had this uh, podcast episode with Louisa Nicola, and and she talked about this paper that looked at you know, high resistance training actually increase the size of hippocampus, a region in the brain that is responsible for learning and memory by 16%. So that is huge because a lot of us, we don't think our brain would develop any further once you reach, you know, puberty or, or even, you know, adulthood. So knowing that certain region of our brain, especially when it comes to learning and memory, that could have such an impact on cognitive impairment diseases like, like Alzheimer's dementia and all that. And another, uh, another paper that I found actually dissected that even further, that exercise uh, increases BDNF, uh, 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 brain-derived neurotropic factor uh, uh, activity via uh, ketones, via beta-hydroxybutyrate. So that's what I'm going to actually break down. I'm going to break down the paper and I'm going to do a post on it because it's such an interesting finding that most people don't have access to because people like you and I, we are on top of the literature of the research and sometimes I find it so interesting and I forget that 95% or even more of the people actually don't have access to this or they don't know you know, to search about this and, and they don't know the information. So um, 
seeing people like you, like Ben Azadi, like Luisa Nicola, like putting all these valuable information, scientific information out there really inspired me to, to want to do that as well. well. I think it's so important to make research tangible because the average person isn't per se going to dive into the literature and read 20 papers and dissect them, but they do appreciate, I know, you know, my ladies do in my groups when I present something, um, you know, most recently talking about the role of non-nutritive sweeteners and the impact on oral glucose tolerance and explaining like, okay, here's the paper and I'm just going to give you like the high level representation so that you can then take that information and determine, you know, as an example, do you want to include these into your diet? Do you want to make sure you're lifting two to three days a week? I mean, that has been for me, um, absolutely life changing. You know, we have a, a mutual friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and first time I ever met her, the first thing she said is, I bet you don't eat enough protein. And then as I got to know her, she's like, I bet you don't lift heavy enough. And I was like, how do you define that? And so now I know, <laughs> I know if I can do six reps, I'm lifting heavy enough. You know, it's, if you're doing 15 or 20, it's not heavy enough, but understanding how important uh, resistance training is. And I am all about brain and cognition at this point. You know, I want to preserve what I have. It's super important to me. So understanding now that there are benefits beyond even what I was aware of with the hippocampus and that helps facilitate learning. It's like, I'm all for it. So you can be both smart and good looking. So, you know, people think, you know, muscle heads or like, you know, gym goers are just going for the looks, but now you know that they can actually be smarter yes, too. Exactly. Um, one last topic I want to cover before we, 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 we end this, this episode, because, you know, I have so many, you know, we can talk yes. for forever and we have so many common topics that we can talk about. This last topic is anti-aging. So, in, you know, intermittent fasting and anti-aging. I don't want to fully open the can of worms of mTOR, but I'll let you, you know, sort of explain how does intermittent fasting benefit in terms uh, in the perspective of anti-aging? Yeah, it, I mean, it's certainly a very hot topic. And I, I think sometimes people get triggered by that word, but understanding that you can improve the quality down to a cellular level. When you talk about fat, you know, prolonged fasting and telomere length and um, understanding that your telomeres are a marker of, you know, how quickly you are aging and understanding that most of us are aging faster than we need to. Um, understanding that you don't necessarily have to be fasting five days a month in order to get the benefits. And so, so much of the anti-aging benefits from my perspective really come from upregulation of autophagy, understanding that we're getting rid of things that could potentially go on to lead to disease um, or contribute to malaise or other symptoms that get us from being in a state where we're moving and active and going to the gym and interacting with other humans to you know, being sedentary, becoming sarcopenic, weak, and metabolically inflexible. So when I think about the kind of longitudinal perspective, I, I think a lot about the telomere research that's ongoing, that you get improvement um, with these longer fasts in, in the quality of your telomere length, um, that your telomeres, and, and certainly I'm not the scientist, but you probably know this even better than I do. When you get improvement in your telomere length, that's, that's a, a marker of aging. But I also find that Along the continuum, you get improvement in biophysical markers. So better metabolic flexibility leads to um, improved lipid profiles, lower fasting insulin, lower A1Cs, lower inflammatory markers like um, high sensitivity CRP, homocysteine, etc. Those are certainly things that I follow. Other metrics like blood pressure, what a lot of people don't realize is that um, you know fasting improves your insulin resistance, which vis-a-vis -vis also 
uh, improves your, your blood pressure as well. And, and understand a lot of the chronic diseases we see are a byproduct of, uh, you know, insulin gone awry, if you will. Insulin's not a bad hormone, but it certainly gets a really bad rap. So those are some of the kind of high level things that I think about in terms of reverse aging or anti-aging or aging, you know, in a, in a thoughtful way, because it's all going to happen over time. Exactly. That last bit, uh, um, I was going to actually say that. And whenever, you know, I say anti-aging and longevity, it doesn't mean that we are turning back time. I mean, I wish we can. Um, it's, it's, we're not at this level where we can literally, you know, make ourselves younger. However, whenever we talk about aging, there's a lot of increased risk of chronic diseases. There's a lot of increased risk of cognitive impairment. And to age healthily that's the goal here so you know our bodies are the most valuable tools that we are given in our lives so therefore the more maintenance you put into it the more you know you clear out the debris you clear out the the, the bad things that could potentially accumulate and cause these chronic diseases the better than the tool will well the the bet, the longer the tool can last so it's a wear and tear sort of concept and you know the more maintenance the longer you can use it and the longer you can use it, the, 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 the more productivity that you, you will have. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one big takeaway message for me was, you know, over the course of 20 years working in allopathic medicine, I got to see people that were aging really well and people that were not. And the things that definitely moved the needle um, was certainly meal frequency absolutely uh, being physically active. And that doesn't per se mean that you have to go to the gym every day, but just, you know, making sure you're getting in, and I know people cringe when they hear me say this, 10,000 steps a day, just being physically active. We know the e one of the easiest things you can do to help with insulin sensitivity after a meal is just walk for 10 or 15 minutes, something that requires zero equipment. And unless you live in, you know, the North Pole, most of us can get outside with a jacket and if needed a hat and maybe some gloves, depending on where you live. Um, where I live, it's not that cold during the winter, so it's, it's actually not all that hard to do that. But just understand there are things we can do every day, whether it's getting high quality sleep, hydrating your body, eating nutrient dense whole foods as much as you possibly can, um, you know, doing things that bring you joy. You know, I, I think we're coming out of two and a half years of, of living, um, you know, in the, in the pandemic and hopefully many of us have reprioritized our lives or prioritize, understand where we need to, what we need to lean into in our, our personal lives. And certainly all those things can help with quality of life metrics and uh, quality of aging metrics as well. That is um, such great advice. Thank you, Cynthia. And one point that I want to emphasize as well, what Cynthia mentioned is the joy, right? You need to find a lifestyle, a diet, an exercise routine that brings you joy because only then you can use it sustainably. You can practice it every day without feeling like you're forcing yourself to do it. It's not that I have to do this thing, I get to do this thing. And as a result, you know, you're just enjoying life in general and, you know, enjoying it with a healthy mind and body. I think that's the most important thing that a lot of people don't talk about. And I, I try to make it a point um, on our podcast to, to, to really emphasize on, you know, self-love, on the importance of community, the importance of empathy, um, apart from, yes, you have all these protocols for, for diets, for ketogenic um, diet, for intermittent fasting, different types of supplements, you know, electrolytes. And we are in, in, in a technological world that we have access to all these 
really fast, convenient way to make sure that we are not lacking any of these micronutrients or macronutrients. But ultimately, you also want to live life happily. You don't want to confine yourself in a space, in a box, where you're forcing yourself to do something that you don't like just for the sake of, oh, I need to get healthy. Uh, you can get healthy and happy at the same time. Um, and I mean, we're all on this journey, myself included, and it's not an easy journey, but it's a lifelong journey, so might as well enjoy it. Absolutely, without a doubt. So before we, we close up, um, I know you, you sort of said your closing remarks. If you want to just wrap up and, and tell our listeners what can they do if they just want to start, you know, by listening to this, they were inspired by you. If they want to start intermittent fasting, where do we, where do, where do they go? Where do they start? Well, I would say, you know, my book is a fantastic resource. So intermittent fasting transformation, but it really is as simple as stop snacking, restructure your macros, more protein, less carbs, and then just start going from, dinner to breakfast without eating and I promise you over time it will not seem so overwhelming to go longer periods it's actually the way that our bodies are designed to thrive we wouldn't be here as a species if we couldn't go periods of time without food it's only this modern day lifestyle that is proven otherwise um, lots of free content I have two podcasts I have the everyday wellness podcast that Lat has been a wonderful guest on and will be back in 2023 I also have the Intermittent Fasting Podcast with Melanie Avalon that I co-host, uh, and you can actually submit questions to us, and we may read them on air, uh, which we do every week. And then there's also other ways to connect with me. You can connect on my website, so it's www.cynthiathurlow.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, be forewarned. I can be a little snarky there. And then I have a free Facebook group called um, Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name. I have men and women in that group. You're more than welcome to join us there. It's a very supportive anti-drama environment because I am anti-drama myself. But it's been such an honor to connect with you and your community, Lad. Oh, absolutely. Um, thank you for giving us your time. And I know you've been busy traveling everywhere, going on all these podcasts and giving all these amazing talks. Um, I'm, I'm really glad that our listeners get to you know, pick your brain on, on all these different different areas, different nuance around intermittent fasting. It's not as straight cut as, as people think. It's not as black and white as people think. All this metabolism stuff, it's way more complicated uh, than people think. And I can't wait to get back on uh, onto your podcast in April next year. Yeah, it'll be great. All right. Thank you so much. If you have enjoyed this episode, please like, share and subscribe. And we welcome any comments or feedback in either the comment section or you can fill up the Google form provided in description. You can find us at HVMN or at Latmanso for myself on all social media platforms. Both HVMN Podcast and myself are powered by Ketone IQ, the most efficient way to elevate your blood ketone levels for optimal cognitive and physical performance, as well as metabolic health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.